Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here as always with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Father Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Today, Father Stephen, let's talk about another uh, early writer of the church, Evagrius of Pontus, or sometimes called Evagrius Ponticus. Um, but we, uh, first of all, want to just run through really quick, um, who is it among these, these early Christian writer guys that we're calling fathers? Who are we not calling fathers? And why is that the case? And are we dealing with a, are we dealing with a father here or not? Well, this is one of those uh, touchy things is <laughs> we know, or remember we've talked in an earlier episode, but it's worth repeating that there are four actual criteria that are recognized to be a father of the church. One is orthodox, so you have to teach the faith of the church. Holiness of life. Okay, you have to have, have, have a good life. You have to be recognized by the church. It's the church's recognition that makes you a father. They are a recognized teacher. And right. antiquity, it's in... Um, a father of the church is uh, is not a growth category. You know, we have sort of cutoff points in the church that we accept, uh, you know, is, is the last date, you know, beyond the at latest in the West would be Gregory, uh, you know, Gregory the Great. Mm-hmm. And the East, the very latest you go is John Damascene, but I think it's much earlier than that, frankly. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So, um, and then there's some who, you know, who who nearly meet that, criteria right but don't quite make the cut why is that well there are two amazing people are extraordinarily important in the early church you know sometimes people you have to judge individual books an author can write a book which is a classic and also can read uh can write terrible stuff that's not a you know <laughs> the idea that you know some writers have books they would love to get make sure they'd never been written because yeah. it's sort of embarrassing <laughs> later on well what happens is we have two extraordinarily important people in the church who met almost all of the criteria Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we actually read their good writings, but they're not technically fathers of the church, but we read them all the time. One is Origen. Mm-hmm. Origen was, would be a serious claimant as the most intelligent person in the early church. I mean, he was, and maybe we have a session, we have a section we did, or a section, an episode uh, we did on. Yeah. He's an amazing man. He's hugely, he was respected by everybody, not just by Christians. Even pagans and Jews went to his school. It was so good. Everyone really said, this guy is great. He had a professional training in philosophy. He knew the Bible thoroughly, had a huge influence on the church. The trouble with Origen, and actually this happened uh, 300 years after he died, is that Origen was very much a man of the church. He, you know, but he's also a professional theologian. So when the church hadn't spoken on something, he'd sometimes speculate. And he'd say they're just speculations. He, did, he wasn't saying these were truths. But, you know, here's what he think might be the case. And mm-hmm. he made some terrible, because of his philosophy, he made some terrible mistakes. Uh-huh. For example, he believed in um, like the pre-existence of souls, right? You know, souls right. are saying hanging around, uh, uh, you know, waiting to be born, yeah, uh, which is still Mormon belief. Scientology, yeah, I was about to say, yeah, Scientology sort of thing, Mormon thing, right? Yeah. And another thing is, is something about about maybe the Greek term. It's a term basically mean a great restoration that everything will be set back as the, the original sin had never occurred. You know, the whole world will be saved. Everything will be right. Meaning, even potentially the salvation of Satan himself. You know, somehow everything will be made right. Those are not orthodox teachings. Right. They weren't central, and that's why no one had trouble with Origen during his life. There were just some things he speculated on. But later on, thanks to uh, uh, 
uh, Jerome was a big, uh, uh, you know, player in this uh, type of thing, is that he later on gets, uh, was condemned for that. And so Origen isn't a father of the church because some of his teachings, even though he didn't put them forth as the church's teachings, you know, he's condemned by the Fifth Ecumenical Council. His teachings, Origenism is condemned in the Fifth Ecumenical Council. Yeah. And Tertullian was really precious to us in the West because he was a Roman in North Africa, Roman North Africa, who wrote great Latin and really had a thorough had a thorough knowledge of Greek. And he was a key guy for writing good Latin because often we had very wooden translations, if anything. And Tertullian gave us most of our Latin theological terminology. He had mm. to invent the Latin terms or equivalents of the Greek terms. Yeah. And he wrote some really great pieces that people love reading his is uh, you know on virginity he has one on martyrdom are really glorious pieces they're really great if you're a student of Latin I mean it's really good Latin to read they're fun reads uh, however he actually left the church to join a sect called the Montanists a charismatic sect uh, not that there's nothing wrong with uh, the char- we're charismatic but I mean there's a sense they they really had this special thing about the Holy Spirit that was not at all orthodox sure sure. So is this the category in which we find uh, Evagrius? Um, is it someone who has written things that had a huge impact and a lot of great stuff, but we can't really swallow all of it? Yeah, or, uh, tell, suffice to say, Evagrius um, was actually a devoted student of origin. Okay, I So see. he gets caught yeah. up in the dragnet. But he's uh-huh. going to have a tremendous influence. We'll talk about that. A tremendous influence, despite that fact, like Origen has had. So, and and we'll uh, we'll talk about why he's he's of special interest uh, to the church as well. But let's begin as we always begin with uh, his life uh, and his career. When is he? Uh, when when is he born? And and where does he go throughout his life? Now. I'm surprised you, you gave this one to me. I love this, Alex. But the real question is, gee, we, I love we say Evagrius of Pontus. Oh, that clears things up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. Pontus, yeah. or uh, Ponticus is simply the Latin for from Pontus. Pontus is simply the northern coast of Turkey. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, Bithynia and Pontus are up there, the northern coast of Turkey. So he was born, I used to be all Greek, remember, the Turks come later. Uh, he was born there in the middle of the fourth century, 346, yeah. you know, between the first two ecumenical councils. Yeah. And did this guy have training? My word. First of all, he's really, uh, he studied under the Cappadocian fathers themselves. Mm-hmm. Basil the Great, one of my favorites, one of my mo- the people I most admire. Basil the Great actually did his preliminary training and things. He ordained him as a reader in the church. That's actually an official post in the church. Hmm. Gregory of Nazianzus, the theologian, one of only three men with John the Apostle who bear the name theologian in the Eastern Church. He also trained him. And ordained him as a deacon. Okay, actually, he was so close to Gregory Nazianzus when Gregory Nazianzus becomes patriarch of Constantinople. He follows him. Yeah. He goes with him there. And actually, he was also very, clearly very well educated. And he made it a special thing to become an expert on heresies. Well, after that, what got him out of Constantinople? Remember, the first ecumenical house was Nicaea, right? Okay. The second was at Constantinople. The second was called First Constantinople in 381. So he stays in Constantinople to that time, but then it's time to leave town. He decides to leave. Okay. Sure. And so where does he go? He goes off to Jerusalem. You know, he, has, he wants to see the places where our Lord was. And in Jerusalem, we have some exciting stuff going on. Rufinus, who is one of the great Latin translators for Greek works. He is really important in the West because a lot of stuff we read for centuries just through his translations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's sort of neat about Rufinus, uh, for those of you who are interested in language and things, one of the things we love about Rufinus, he's such a bad translator in this sense, 
is in he's in a good sense he translated things quite literally you can actually re, you can almost recreate the greek text from reading his stuff it's so wooden at times mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's very helpful I and mean, we it's very very faithful but he's a very important person in the early church he was for a good good buddies with jerome uh for a while and of course like everybody's a good buddy with jerome they end up breaking up jerome was had a difficulty keeping friends and you always become his worst enemy after you've been his friend and then we have Melania, associated with Jerome as well, uh, and they take him under wing when he's in Jerusalem at a monastery there. And Melania, who's a great woman, she tells him, you know what you need to do to really get the stuff, your version of grad school? You need to go out to the Egyptian desert itself. Mm-hmm. You know what those monks, you need to go there. That's where you need to go. And he go, he, boy, he takes it up and he goes there and lives the rest of his life there from 383 to 399. I see. Also, ref- Rufinus, really quick, who is he the guy through whom we have all of our origin stuff? Uh, yeah, he was a big translator of origin. And and then origin stuff got all like burned later. So most of our origin stuff comes through him, right? Yeah. Is okay, when origin okay. goes down the tubes, we have to depend on things we find later on. But also what Rufinus would do, Rufinus in Latin, what mm-hmm. he would do is sometimes with his translation we have to worry about is when there are things he knew were going to be problematic, he just dropped them out. Okay. <laughs> Some of the worst stuff he just it would conveniently disappear from his text, and we rediscover them through other translations and languages. See. See, origin see. always remained popular out east. I mean, uh-huh. in Persia and things like that, in Armenia, Georgia, out in the east. So yeah. those translations are often great because we get the un. These people liked origin. He's mm-hmm. even considered a saint in the Church of Georgia. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Go yeah. figure. Okay. Uh, I should say Avagrius is. I'm sorry. I should say Avagrius. But no, origin. origin is still honored in the eastern, in, in out in Georgia. So again, so you're right. So he was a really important guy. When he goes out to the Egyptian desert, who does he get? He got Macarius of Alexandria, but he also had probably Macarius the Great, one of the great, great, great desert fathers, mm. as mentors. And then guess who he has as a student? What are the chances? John Cassian. Yeah, yeah. Is a personal student, a devout, and he's going to be the one who's going to bring monasticism in the West in a very special way. Right. So a lot of the stuff we're going to get is going to be from Evagrius. Evagrius taught Cassian, and Cassian loved him and took his stuff back with him. And we've done our an episode on John Cassian before, if, if you're uh, curious to go back. Yeah, very important figure. So let's talk about uh, monasticism once again, um, especially with these uh, early church uh, figures. Uh, monasticism remains an abiding interest. Um, so let's talk about how Evagrius uh, intersects with that movement. Well, the real thing about Evagrius that's really uh, interesting is he's really the first intellectual to be a monastic. Other yeah. monastics are very pious and they're intelligent, but they're not intellectuals in that sense. Uh, typically, the monastics were not, not, that was not the type attracted to the desert. And so he's the first one who really combines those two. Yeah. I mean, he's a really good, he's a real intellectual guy. He's not just very pious and very erudite and says he knows the scriptures, he knows the Father. That's erudition. Sure. He's also puts everything together in a very sense of, you know, he's very much a thinker, like Origen was a thinker. Remember, Origen yeah. wrote a book called uh, On First Things. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he left a lot of writings. Most of the Desert Fathers don't leave much. Yeah. He left yeah. a lot of writings. Now, mind you, they tried to get rid of most of them after later on, after the Fifth Ecumenical Council, but we have plenty of, they're hidden under other people's names, or we find them in the East. So the guy <laughs> yeah. wrote a lot. Sure. Sure. Okay. He was okay. greatly influenced by Origen, of course, and he 
his focus was on mystical theology, one of the things, is the, the stages of ascent to God. And this is going to be a big theme in the church, because one of the things, we have a, guy, a, a saint called John Climacus. I love his writings. He wrote something mm-hmm. called The Ladder, which if, mm-hmm. you, if you know Greek, you realize Climacus means ladder. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so he's called John the Ladder. And he'd say for my, he says, here are sort of the steps of growing in the Lord. You know, here are the like steps and here's how you go each step. Yeah, yeah. And this really comes from Evagrius. He was the one who really put in such, you know, it's sort of like growing up steps, you know, like going up a ladder. And so that is really stays with us. Another thing he had that really had a long life is he gave, so he was big in mystical theology. You know, how do we grow in the Lord in knowledge, you know, knowledge of God. But the other thing was the practical thing of living the holy life, the ascetical life, virtues and vices. He's the guy who invented the deadly sins. He invented them. He came up with a list. Mind you, he was influenced strongly by Greek and Roman writings. But he actually had eight. And everybody else had eight until Gregory the Great. Mm -hmm. Gregory couldn't live with eight. He needed seven. Seven's a better number. And also two of them really had an overlap. So Gregory is the one who gets the seven deadly sins. It used to be eight. But it all comes from Evagrius. Evagrius did the the, the real yeoman's work on that. Sure. Sure. Okay. What's so okay. important is how much he influenced other people. I mean, Evagrius right now, we've really rediscovered him in the 20th century. Starting in 1920, there was sort of a revival. People saying, who is this great guy? Those people who hit him and, and they said, we want to know more about him because, wow, he has an important influence. So who are the people he influenced? John Cassian loved Evagrius. Mm-hmm. So when you read John Cassian, you're reading all the orthodox stuff from Evagrius is in there. And Cassian, right, he passes down the deadly sins tradition to oh, us. Oh, sure. Right? Then we have something called Dionysius the Areopagite, which is strange because this guy actually wrote in the 6th century. We don't have a clue who he is, but it's some of the most influential Christian writings ever written. Right. Is he, he's the, is he the, um, the names of God uh, and uh, the really, really mystical... Super mystical. I played in some on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Plato on steroids. uh, You know, uh, so, but he was enormously impactful. uh, Sometimes he's called Dennis the Areopagite. Is he sometimes called Pseudo Dionysius or is that another guy writing in his name? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We know he's not Dionysius. Okay. So for years we called him Dennis or Dionysius the Areopagite. He claimed, the person who wrote claimed this was actually the guy who was converted by Paul when he spoke in Athens. That's right. That's Paul right, wrote, spoke on the Areopagus, and he said, guess what? The guy who we converted wrote stuff. Yeah. <laughs> this was actually written in the 6th century, but close enough. Sure, okay. sure. <laughs> and so he comes up with his mystical theology, which has some really good stuff and some really wild stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it's incredibly important to, to know about because it explains a lot that comes afterwards. He's incredibly, but he was hugely influenced by the writer, the real person who wrote that, clearly mm-hmm. knew of Agrius. We have Maximus the Confessor, who's really big time in the Eastern Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have John Climacus, so I had to mention him with the latter. Isaac of Nineveh, one of the key figures in the Syriac Church. And Simeon, the new theologian, the other one of three people in the Eastern Church who have the title theologian. All of those people owe a lot to Evagrius. So, so in a sense, his disciples, you know, his, the people who kept on that have made him very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so all these all these guys were were uh, learning from Evagrius or were yeah. influenced by his writings in some way. Yeah, yeah. great. Well, let's talk about why uh, Evagrius. I mean, obviously a really important guy. Why does he fall out of favor? We've talked about origin, um, and when does that happen? Well, it happens over 150 years after he's dead. 
uh, that, that he'll have any troubles vagrants. Otherwise, he's well thought of. It's kind of a theme, isn't it? <laughs> and like origin, it's 300 day. years after he's dead, you know, yes. or, or 250 years after he's dead. It was later on, what happened is Jerome, who just can't walk away from a fight, he and the Bishop of Jerusalem have a fight over originism. And when when Jerome really is de- devoted to something, it's it's no holds barred. And so it ends up leading to the uh, Council that condemns. Second Constantinople in 553 condemns originism in terms that clearly encompass Evagrius. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he's kind of uh, collateral damage from the origin fallout. Right, and the three things that we do see him is subordinationism, something that borders on subordinationism. The, fa- the son is not really equal quite to the father. Sure. Pre-existence yeah. of souls and the restoration of creation universalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, great. All right, so um, so what's the what's the damage here? <laughs> what, wow. what, what is that? What is all? What does that happening mean for us uh, uh, and for for us reading Evagrius today? Well, it means first of all that he uh, Evagrius, the original Greek texts are are largely lost. We uh, we can reconstruct things from the Eastern languages. Again, he never lost his reputation in the East. Once you go beyond, once you get past Mesopotamia, once you get to Mesopotamian things, he's fine. And so, especially the Armenian church is really important with manuscripts and things because it's really safe from things. So we have really good manuscript tradition there. The Georgian church, we have Persia in Persian like. So we have to rely on those languages to find out the original writings. We have quotes. We know they're the real thing, but we often have to take a translation rather than the original. And mm-hmm. also, we often in the original Greek, it'll be in somebody that they lie about it. We'll know it's really from him, but they'll just use somebody else's name to get it through because, it's, hey, this material's good. It's not the heretical stuff. Let's use it. Just yeah. put another name on it. Yeah, yeah, great, great. Um, okay, so so he, you, you'd said that he's honored in the east yeah though right he's he still hasn't he hasn't lost his luster in 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 parts of the east right but i don't mean like the eastern church like the byzantine church the greek church i mean really east beyond the greek-speaking world oh okay these are people who don't speak greek okay we're talking about people who speak languages like armenian and georgian Well, great. Well, thanks, Father Stephen. Uh, anything else you have for us on Evagrius Ponticus? He clearly is a real gift to the church. And again, I think we what, now we sort of rediscover this. To me, the real clue to this is to uh, emphasize that um, if we throw out certain things, we focus on certain writings, it's like Tertullian. We have treasures that we want to keep. Mm-hmm. Like he wrote um, you know, a treatise on prayer, which is really top-notch. Yeah. You know, he wrote a piece on the ascetical life, which is really good stuff. Actually, I love in this in the um, in the treatise on prayer, he actually has a wonderful saying where he uh, basically says a theologian prays, and if you really know how to pray, you're a theologian. Mm-hmm. You know, putting the the the, the, the essence of theolo- theology as a connection with prayer. Um, so he's very important in the, mis- in the mystical tradition and the ascetical tradition. And uh, again, I think the best way for us to look upon like origin and truly, I think we should just focus people on the really good writings. Yeah. Leave aside the more problem for scholars. But as far as religiously to use them, I think some of the, the history of some prayer and things have some really good things mm-hmm. that we don't want to lose.
Great. Well, thank you, Father Stephen. Thank you so much for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.